0: Turn your Bibles, please, to the book of the Revelation, chapter 1, as we begin a new series today. We've introduced it for several weeks. I want to read the first three verses, and this is the Word of God. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to Him to show to His servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Let's pray. Father, we're so glad this morning that we have before us the very written word of you, the living God. We thank you that it bears witness to your son, Jesus Christ, the uncreated one, the one who is king forevermore. So, Father, as we look at this, we acknowledge it's a difficult book, uh, Father, and we need the help of your Holy Spirit to understand it and to apply it to our lives. So, Father, we pray for that help today, uh, that you might be glorified as you work in us, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, there is perhaps no more intimidating book in the Bible than the one we finally actually begin today, uh, the book we call The Revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a whole different type of literature from what you find elsewhere in the New Testament. The term we use is apocalyptic literature, uh, apocalypse being the transliteration of the Greek word that we translate as revelation. Uh, at the same time, this apocalypse This revelation is a letter, and it's a letter that's written to the seven churches in what today we call Turkey. So it's a letter, it's a book that tells a story, and for those of you who love stories, you want to know that, it's got a lot of pictures in it. You know, you're always glad to get those books with lots of pictures. Uh, Well, this has a lot of pictures. Some will be familiar, some will be quite strange, some will be scary, some will be reassuring, uh, there are lions and bears and dragons and beasts that stretch our imagination. You like horses? There's a lot of horses in this book, all right? And we live in a very visual age uh, where pictures uh, seem to take precedence over words. And it's interesting, John is told throughout this book more to look than he is to listen. And that's what we want to, to do it as these pictures that we see uh, that are meant to overwhelm us with the glory of Christ. They should appeal in our very vis- visual world. Uh, and so God's telling us through a story, picture book, written as a letter about what soon must take place. It's a story about how God rules in and over history and is guiding it to the day when King Jesus returns in triumph, when the new Jerusalem descends from the heaven and we will be forever with the Lord that's a glorious day. Now the thing is, in the meantime, we live in a psalm to fallen world where God's people face discouragement and heartbreak and persecution. I mean, we bemoan the loss of such things as absolute truth and morality. We live in a world that's desperately trying to live as if God does not exist, and desperately trying to prove that sin does not exist either. Uh, I believe as a direct result, that's why we see that we live in a nation where in the recent poll, 77% of American people believe we're living in a, a time of moral decay in our country. It's quite a large percentage. And the question I'm often asked is uh, if we're, we're living in the end times. And uh, you know, people have been asking me that question for at least 45 years. Uh, I've been preaching, and that's okay. It's a legitimate question to ask. And the short answer to that is... Yes, because we have been ever since the ascension of Jesus into heaven. Then what people really want to know is this. Are we close to when King Jesus is going to return? When will the end of the ages be? And that's where the book of Revelation enters the discussion because it is a book that talks about the future. There is eschatology here. That is the study of the last things. But as we shall see... Uh, it's also very much about the day in the first century when it was first read. Uh, and as we said at the outset, that it is a daunting book to tackle. But here's the thing. God intends for His Word, for the Bible, to be understood, to be revealing to His people. Uh, he doesn't intend it to be confusing. He intends to be understandable to His people. And that, friends, certainly includes the book of Revelation. So yes, it is a book about the things that must soon take place, but more than that, it's a book that's about Jesus Christ's triumph in history. Uh, As such, the approach we'll use to the book is that it gives us strength to live in this world today, and it gives us hope for tomorrow as it unfolds for us the triumph of King Jesus. Uh, So to be introduced to the book of of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, to see it as a letter that's written to the seven churches and to us, let's, let's go on to the text. But as we begin any book, we got to note some preliminaries, so let's uh, begin with the basics. Who wrote it? What says John did? Uh, and it seems he's so well known to the churches, he has no need of any other of, of, of introduction there. Just to give his name is enough. He had been living at some point in Ephesus. We know that. Um, And so there's nothing here about being an an apostle. What there is is that he's a servant, a servant. And at that point in history, he had the distinction of being the longest standing member, if you will, of the church of Jesus Christ. He's an old man. He'd endured Herod's persecution in Galilee. He'd endured the opposition of the Jewish leaders in Judea. Uh, Nero's limited, intense persecution in the mid-60s had taken the lives of, of Peter and Paul, but not of John. Uh, and then aside from some uh, regional persecution, the church enjoyed a decade of peace, uh, as seen as sort of a cult of, of uh, Judaism. But then came the emperor Domitian in 81. He was more or less like another Nero. Uh, emperor worship grew under him his leadership, uh, and he's probably still the emperor when John writes this. In 96 A.D., he'll be replaced by Trajan uh, as emperor who decreed punishment uh, for anyone that would not sacrifice uh, to the emperor's image. And as we'll discover later, John saw that come, and he predicts that as he writes. So when did he write it? It suggests the probable date is around the year 95 uh, A.D., That makes it the last written book of the New Testament. And where was he? He was on the island of Patmos, uh, a small, rocky, barren, four-square-mile island off the coast of Turkey. Uh, It had a prison there for Rome's political prisoners, and John was one of their political prisoners. He's there for the testimony of Jesus, that is, for proclaiming the gospel. And, of course, the original audience were these seven churches in seven cities, in what we call Turkey today, they called it Asia then, uh, near Ephesus. Let me suggest you're going to see a lot of numbers in Revelation, seven, perhaps the most prominent, uh, because it's considered to be the number of completeness or wholeness. Now, there are a lot more, were a lot more than seven churches in Asia Minor, in Turkey in those days, So when John writes the seven churches of Asia, seven seems to be chosen as sort of symbolic, um, represents the complete church, the whole church, the church in every age, including today. Uh, And why is that? Well, John's explicit purpose is to prepare his servants for what must soon take place. So let me just take a moment and say a word about what Revelation is not. All right? Uh, It's not a puzzle to look at and be figured out. All right? It's not a book that obscures the message despite the difficulties of some of these pictures for a 21st century audience. To be sure, John's original readers would have understood many of these images uh, and pictures better than we do. Uh, They would have rung a bell with them. It's not a book to be diagrammed and charted out endlessly. It's not a detailed explanation of how every battle works out to bring about the end of history. Now, I know that many of us will come to this study with some preconceptions. For instance, we all come from different eschatological point of view, frameworks and outlooks. Some of you would tell me you're premillennialist. Some of you would say you're historic premillennialist. Some of you would say you're all-millennialist. Some of you would tell me you're post-millennialist. Some of you would tell me you're pan-millennialist. Where it pans out's okay with you. Uh, and, uh, uh, and but here's what happens: whatever eschatological lens we look at, look through, it, it does make a difference in how we might view the book. So what I want us to do, and this includes me, is take away those preconceptions. Do away with whatever your millennial view is today. Okay, just drop it for the next, we'll be through this in two, three weeks or something like that. <laughs> uh, but put those aside and, and see what does the book say? What does it say? Let's not try to force it into some mold that matches our, our uh, premunitalism or our omunitalism or our whatever minimalism. In other words, what's God's message? Because quite frankly, you'll discover none of those views fits perfectly with what comes in this book we also need to say there are several views of interpretation for how people take it some people are preterist Uh, that means you think that that the book has already been mostly fulfilled uh, by set with with the fall of jerusalem in 70 a.d and then the demise of the roman empire now if you believe that requires you move up when the book was written to before the year 70 uh, uh, as well some are futurist. That means they believe everything that happens here is really lumped into that short period of time at the end of history before Jesus returns. Some are historical in their viewpoint. Uh, they believe that it outlines the history of the world chronologically uh, and that you follow it chronologically from chapter 6 through 19. Some are simply idealist. That it just represents the eternal conflict of, of good and evil that persists in every age. And then the view that we'll probably follow is, is called the eclectic view. It takes a little bit of each of those views and suggests that no view works all the way through the book. Uh, there's a future crisis, to be sure. There's an application now. There's always the battle of good versus evil uh, that does repeat itself World empires do fall, and most importantly, God wins. Uh, so let's let revelations unfold truth for us rather than, again, trying to bring our presuppositions into it to make it match what we already think. Take John at his word. God gave him the revelation of Jesus Christ. He said to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. Again, be quick to say it's not the purpose to give us a blow-by-blow blow detailed breakdown of the last days. And, and quite frankly, people like Hal Lindsey and his ilk uh, 50 years ago weren't really helpful to the church's study of this book. So what is the revelation of Jesus Christ? If we drop down to verse 19, we didn't read it, but drop your eyes down to that. He says, write, therefore, the things that you have seen... All right, those that are and those that are to take place after this. And that's the outline John will use in writing this book. So Revelation shows us scenes in heaven that ordinarily you and I don't see. You've got symbols in it. Make it known is the word language for communicating with symbols. Again, they're unfamiliar, not to the first century so much, uh, but to us. Many of the symbols require that we know the Old Testament. That's why if, you wanted, if, you, if you're not in the choir or something Wednesday night, we're, we're looking at that in Ezekiel. Uh, we've seen the, how it ties in with this. Uh, one writer said this, "...anytime you read Revelation, it's like stepping out of reality and into a carnival of mirrors. One of those mirrors do not or should not reflect our own faces as they much do the faces of the Old Testament prophets." whose faces reflect the glory of God's Son. And so some of the symbols are are multifaceted, and and we do not have to break them down, all right? So then we've got got pictures and illustrations and symbols, and they really do grab our attention. Uh, So as we read Revelation, what is it? It's a a book that's, well, one, it's going to teach us a lot about the holiness of God, what the choir just sang. It's going to teach us a lot about sin, about sin's power and the plague of sin. Uh, It's going to teach us about the church. It's going to teach us a lot about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We'll see that next week. Uh, It's a book that calls us to worship. Many of the great hymns of the church find their roots in this book. Holy, holy, holy. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Uh, Handles Messiah, uh, particularly the hallelujah chorus. And so as you go through this, there are a lot of big ideas that I want us to keep in mind uh, that will give us strength for today, that will give us hope for tomorrow. These are things I want us to watch for as we work our way through the book. And the first is this, God is involved with us. He's very much a part of our lives. God's glory appears in Ezekiel 1 uh to remind God's people who are even in exile that God's still among them. And this book reminds a struggling group of Christians there in the in the tenth uh, at the end of the, the first century that God's still among them. Uh God rules all of history, not just some of history, not just part of history, but God rules all of history. And we'll see that God brings all of history together in the person of Jesus Christ. And so He's the star of Revelation. He's the key to Revelation. We want to see Jesus crucified, risen, and triumphant in every chapter, on every page as we read this. Because in the end, God God wins with the triumph of Jesus. And so you have this ongoing emphasis on the majesty of Christ and the glory of God that does command our worship. Uh, we can understand what it says through very challenging times. We can be prepared for the things that, that, uh, that soon take place. We can learn to live lives that are ready for Christ's return. We are to be ready so that we can pray what John prays at the book's end, come quickly, Lord Jesus. So revelation, we know, always speaks to god 's people, likewise, revelation always speaks to and encourages the persecuted church we 're going to soon move into our mission conference season, and our concern should be for the church around the world and and, and Phil Newton wrote some he wrote so well i 'm just going to sort of summarize it. Uh, he said, Revelation calls us to pray for the church across the world, the persecuted church. Many of the scenes that will unfold in Revelation uh, will bring to our minds real-life issues that are facing the church uh, around the globe right now. And so this book is a call for us to pray, a call for action. It reminds us we need to pray for the persecuted church. We need to be reminded that the church in every culture faces worldly and satanic opposition. And so we've got to depend on the triumph of the Lamb. Let's help the bur- bur- share the burden of our persecuted brothers and sisters throughout the world as we pray for them. So now let's, let's look at the first three verses here, uh, the prologue. Uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. All right, Revelation simply has the idea of unveiling something. Uh, Show, he's not trying to conceal it from us, all right, but he wants to make it known. And And it's the things that must soon take place. Now, keep in mind, God's view of time is not our view of time. And so what he's saying is certain things... And at this point, they're all unspecified what these things are, are going to happen. And they're going to happen soon from God's perspective. Now, when he says the revelation of Jesus Christ, scholars debate, does it mean Jesus is the source of the revelation or is he the content of the revelation? Now, I would lean here to say he's, he, he is the, the source is the primary thing meant to meant, meant here, uh, all of John's material we're going to see comes as direct revelation from Jesus Christ. But the other thing to say is the subject matter is Jesus. It's clearly Jesus. And so the last times, the end times, were inaugurated by Christ's resurrection and ascension. John writes in his first letter in, in 2.18, he says, this is the last hour. And so we've got a pattern here. You may remember in Daniel 2... After Daniel interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream of of how history is going to go, uh, he, he comments to Nebuchadnezzar this, A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. Well, that's what we have. A great God has made known to us what shall be. And note, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So follow the chain there. You have God the Father, the word of God, uh, giving information to Jesus, who tells it to the angel so he can tell it to John. All right? John will serve as a witness verifying these words and these pictures. What he saw, not just ordinary words or information, but the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, which is a code for John saying that he's talking about the gospel, uh, the gospel of the cross when he says that, uh, as well as everything John saw. So everything in this book points to Jesus. Everything about this unfolding revelation has Jesus in it one way or another. He will be the focus of our attention. Uh, you're not going to doubt what the focal point of Revelation is, all right? Uh, we're going to hear it's about Jesus. So why we sang, may Jesus Christ be praised uh, in all those various circumstances. That idea of a testimony or witness, that's going to become significant because of persecution, which brings us then to the intriguing promise of blessing in verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. In the context, that would mean the seven churches who would read aloud what John writes in the context of worship. All right? And so so blessing is promised for the one who reads it, Blessings promised for those who listen to it, by the way, out loud, it's emphasized. And then blessing is for those who keep it, who obey it, who do what it says, who let it shape the way they think and the way they live. Blessing comes when we obey God's word. Uh, And so let me urge you, what it it says is, and read it. Uh, Derek Thomas says, give yourself to this book and you will see Jesus, you'll hear God. And you'll find yourself equipped and strengthened against the enemy in a dark day. So I can tell you, you can listen to the book of Revelation, Revelation being read in just under an hour and 10 minutes, all right? You can, you can, they got phones that can do just, it's an hour and eight minutes on, on one version I listen to. The average reader can read Revelation, uh, adult reader, in, in one hour, all right? It's 200 words per minute if you do that, all right? Which is the average speed uh, adults read, all right? So do it. Set, get, set aside an hour, all right? Why? Because the time's near. Now, notice he does not say the end is near. He says the time is near. And the word for time he uses here is not chronos, not chronological time, not, not 11 o'clock on January 23rd. The, the word he, he uses here is kairos, meaning opportune moment, the, for such a time as this moment. He's telling the churches that what happened at the cross and through the resurrection, the ascension, points to the ultimate triumph of Christ. And, the ultimate, and now the opportune moment for that triumph to work itself out in history has come. So as those seven churches looked to the days ahead, it, it looked grim. All right? But, but when we look at, at their situation uh, that they were in uh, through the lens of Christ the triumphant lamb is on the move. He's on the move. So what about us? First, I would ask if you met the Jesus who this book is about, if you placed your faith in him. If not, we'd love to introduce you to him. Uh, Let me encourage you to listen carefully, watch carefully in the weeks ahead. Hear the glory and the splendor of Jesus, the lamb who was slain. Theologian B.B. Warfield calls Revelation a prophetic poem unsurpassed in sacred or profane literature in either the grandeur of its poetic imagery or the superb sweep of its prophetic vision. Indeed, so read it. Read it out loud. It's all about Jesus. It's from Jesus. It's intended to give us strength for today and hope for tomorrow. In a world where evil seems to triumph... See, God calls us to stand firm as the people of God. As David Strain says, this is a book, a message we need to hear more urgently than ever before because as a church, we face cultural marginalization. We face social exclusion and economic sanction. And in many places around the world, persecution for the gospel's sake. And what this book does is it lifts our eyes to Jesus. Jesus. His mother named him after the gospel writer Mark in the hopes that he would tell people the gospel like Mark. The thing was, 13th century Europeans found it impossible to leave Mark's tales of a faraway land. He claimed that when he was only 17, he took an epic journey lasting a quarter of a century. It took him across the, the steppes of, of Russia, the rugged mountains of Afghanistan, the western wastelands of Persia, uh, over the top of the world through the Himalayas. He was the first European to enter China. Through an amazing set of circumstances, he became a favorite in the court of Kublai Khan, who was the most powerful ruler in the world in that day. He saw cities that made Europe's capitals and looked like roadside villages. The Khan's palace dwarfed any palace or cathedral in Europe. It was so massive that it had one banquet room that seated 6,000 people to eat. And when they did eat, they all ate on plates of pure gold. He saw the world's first paper money, and he marveled at the explosive power of gunpowder. It would be 18th century before Europe was producing as much steel as China was in the year 1267. He was the first uh, Italian to taste that Chinese culinary invention called pasta. All right? It's a very important one, by the way. Uh, And uh, as an officer of the court, he, he traveled to places, again, no European would see for 500 years. Then, after serving there for 17 years, he, he came back to Venice. And he brought back gold and silk and spices. And when he arrived home and he told him about China, nobody believed him. His family priest rebuked him for spinning lies. And on his deathbed, his family and his friends and his priest begged him to recant his tales about China. But gasping for breath, Mark spoke his final words. I have not even told you the half of what I saw. Uh, The 13th century Europeans rejected the stories as tales of a liar or lunatic. History proved it was true that what he wrote, the travels of Marco Polo, were true. You know, about 1,300 years before Marco Polo, uh, another man, John, went on an amazing journey, and he saw heaven itself. And we're going to run into people all the time that are going to shake their heads and not believe what we say, what John says. What I suspect John would tell us is this. I have not even told you the half of what I saw. That Jesus is more incredible, that he's more amazing, that he's more glorious than you can possibly imagine. That he's God's greatest gift to us. May this book we read, may this book that we see, move us to long for Jesus himself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the incredible splendor of your son, Jesus Christ. And so, Father, may we, as we read and as we see this book, as we see these pictures, Father, may we be moved to marvel at the incredible Savior Jesus Christ is. Father, just not marvel, but fall on our knees in worship. Father, commit our life to making Him known to a world that desperately needs to hear about Jesus Christ. Father, is anybody here that doesn't know Jesus today? Father, may they see his splendor. Father, in your word, be drawn to worship him, we pray. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.